Hello, welcome to the Classical Music Pod. In this week's episode, we've got an interview with the current MP for Tottenham and former Peterborough Cathedral chorister David Lammy. I talk to ENO's latest conducting recruit. We've got the story behind Michael Jackson's new musical biopic. And a deconstruction of a Fantasia favourite. Brett Dean has become the first known composer to be diagnosed with COVID-19, the virus that has swept through much of the Far East, forcing the cancellation of hundreds of concerts and tours, the closure of the Guildhall School of Music here in London, and panic buying of toilet rolls across the country. In a recent blog post, the London Philharmonic's designated composer-in-residence wrote that his transferal by hazmat-suited healthcare professionals to the Royal Adelaide Hospital's isolation unit felt like being in a Kafka novel. Whilst expressing gratitude to the hospital staff, Dean lamented that, as a musician who lives to communicate, the lack of human contact or day-to-day interaction is the thing I'm finding hardest to deal with. He also revealed that he hasn't been able to compose, saying that his isolation hasn't felt like a time of creativity in any way whatsoever. Our best wishes to Brett. Hello? Hi Sam, I've got news from Wales. Is it the news that last week the conductor Carlo Rizzi twice stopped a production of Verdi's Le Vepres Sicilien at Welsh National Opera after mobile phones went off in the audience? That's right. A BBC journalist present in the audience said that he got a warm round of applause after he stopped and ticked off the audience member. This isn't the first time a mobile phone has drawn irritation during a high-profile live performance. In 2013, the pianist Christian Zimmermann stormed out of a concert because an audience member was filming him, only to return moments later to declare that the destruction of music because of YouTube is enormous. Mm, In the pop world, Madonna, Alicia Keys, Beyoncé and Adele have all requested that fans desist from using their phones during concerts. And I think quite right. I think it's really off-putting. Yeah, and you want people to be present in the room, don't you, rather than filtering that experience through Mm. a screen. This is only going to become increasingly controversial as more and more orchestras develop their mobile phone apps for reading programme notes. For example, the BBC Philharmonic have BBC notes that they use at the moment, and there are quite a lot of people that are angry that the light from the screen is putting them off from the performance happening in front of them. One group of performers who rely on people filming them to further their exposure are buskers, and they may be struggling to find places to perform after an announcement from Westminster City Council. Yes, buskers will now need licences to work at some of London's most popular tourist sites. The council has cited nearly 2,000 complaints a year relating to noise and obstruction caused by street performers. 
Currently, you can busk anywhere in London, apart from on the Tube, without a licence, although there is an unofficial code that regulars abide by. Under the current proposals, however, pitches on Oxford Street, Leicester Square, Chinatown and Piccadilly will be subject to council-specified rules, leaving Covent Garden and Trafalgar Square as the only self-managed hotspots. Critics of the proposals have launched an online petition in protest, adding that the unlicensed Trafalgar Square will become the most oversubscribed pitch in the world if the council forces all other buskers to use it. Now, Tim, I know you've busked around the world. What are your feelings on this? I'm torn. I'm really torn here because I have, in the past, made most of my living from busking in New Zealand and Australia. And I know that anything that makes that process harder is directly impacting the amount of money going into your pocket Hmm. and yet now living in London and being surrounded by buskers I can definitely understand why people would find it disruptive and obstructive and generally a little irritating it kind of depends on the quality of the music that they're making that said it feels like an odd use of council funding that could be going towards constructive musical projects within the community and now for a roundup of some of this week's smaller news stories we go to our news beat tim can we have a samba beat this week for sure The Dutch violinist and conductor André Rieu has cancelled two weekend concerts in Germany, apparently due to a complete loss of voice. Very appropriate for a violinist and conductor. According to the latest statistics from the German Orchestral Union, the percentage of women in German orchestras has now risen to 41% from just 6% in 1971. Mm, Good news to hear on International Women's Day. Placido Domingo and the Royal Opera House have mutually decided that the singer will withdraw from July's production of Don Carlo at the Covent Garden following ongoing accusations of sexual misconduct. This news comes in the same week that an LA law firm investigating anonymous charges of sexual misconduct against Mr Domingo ruled that the women's allegations were credible. More appropriate use of hands this weekend at a Boston Symphony Orchestra performance of Prokofiev's second piano concerto, conductor Hanu Litnu fist-bumped soloist Seong Jin Cho so as to avoid any risk of coronavirus transmission. And finally, a Michael Jackson biopic musical has opened in California this month, telling the story of the singer through the eyes of his glove. For the Love of a Glove imagines a Faustian alternate history where Jackson meets a sparkly glove from outer space named Thrill Lahar, who gives Michael his talents in exchange for virgin blood. I think whoever's put that together has got to take a long, hard look at the man in the mirror. Give me all in my lamp, I agree with Nick. I agree with every single word. You must have a consensus. Tim, you and I often talk about chiselling. We do, yes. And that's not because we're workmen. <laughs> no, far from it. There's an appeal in that metaphor, though, of taking a block of marble and chiselling it down, taking away anything extraneous until you're left with a gleaming statue. Mm-hmm. A la Michelangelo or Leonardo. Or indeed any of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This week, I was all set to reduce a piece down to a single solid gag, a bit of bassoon-based chiselling. But then I realised that the piece we're talking about is one of addition, a story of aspiration, not reduction. So I'm going to give you some extra things to listen for, and something new to think 
about Love Island's most popular phrase. It is what it is. Analysis Before it was everyone's favourite bit from Fantasia, The Sorcerer's Apprentice was just a ten-minute-long orchestral work written in 1897 by Gallic Goethe fan Paul Duca. It's a musical retelling of the German poet Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's poem Die Zauberlehrling, itself a retelling of the ancient Greek poet Lucian's Philopsudes, written in AD 150. And thanks to Walt, most of us know the basic story of the apprentice casting the master spell to avoid his chores, the broom filling the water from the well. And the apprentice desperately trying to stop it by chopping it into pieces, which then, in turn, become multiple water carriers. Only when the master returns and casts the corrective spell does normality return. In the musical narration of that story, there are a couple of lovely, scene-setting harmonic details that Paul slips in for us to intimate that this is a magical, mystery story. The first are augmented triads, which are harmonically unstable, and I think of as the classic game of Buckaroo. Of course you do. You know the one. There's a kicking plastic toy horse, and the players try and place items on his back without triggering the buck buck buckarooing. Now that you've described it, I can't help but see the musical allegory. But for anyone who hasn't picked up on it, could you explain? A normal triad is perfectly balanced, like an unladen buckaroo. But by adding that extra semitone, you destabilize the triad. And it becomes uncertain in which way the harmony will buck. This is also true of the diminished seventh chord, which make up the outline of this famous figure from the piece. Once Duca has set the scene, how does he go about telling the story? Well, he assigns motifs to the different characters. This is the master, obviously a motif familiar to John Williams. And this is The Apprentice. And here comes that good gag. What's the orchestral instrument that most closely resembles a long wooden broom? It is the bassoon, and it's that multi-keyed monstrosity that plays the broom's theme. Excellent gag, I liked that. But wait, it gets better. Clearly Ducar was a humorous chap, because when the broom has been chopped in half by these savage blows... What should we hear? as the broom hearths resurrect themselves into two separate broom workers, the double or contrabassoon. Oh, well done, Paul. What I love about this piece is that he's seen that poem and imagined what it could be as music. That moment is one of quite funny literal translation, but the work as a whole is one huge creative leap. 
And how is that opposite to Love Island? Well, not Love Island specifically, which I grant you has done innovative things to capitalise on the interaction of social media, targeted marketing and reality TV. Now, I just hate the phrase, it is what it is. 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 This exercise in tautology doesn't really offend me from a linguistic perspective. It's more what its lack of examination and interpretation represents. A willingness to let things be. A reduction, rather than an apprentice-like addition. If Walt Disney had heard that tone poem and just let it be, not thought to make it into an animation, there'd be no fantasia. And if Duca had just read Goethe's poem and gone, it is what it is, there'd be no wonderful piece of music. If Goethe had said, it is what it is, about Lucian's Philosudes, there'd be no Zauberlehrling. Sometimes we've got to be willing to interpret and build on the things around us, whether that's ideas, poems, or music. Say, not it is what it is, but this is what it could be, or this is like this, or it is this, and I think this about it. Otherwise, you end up with terrible, unanalyzed, meaningless ideas bouncing around. Brexit means Brexit, and we are going to make... Reinterpreting the Sorcerer's Apprentice turned out to be Dukas' most famous musical act and has put him in the pantheon of one-hit musical wonders along with Pachelbel and Massenet. Life imitated art as the musical spell Dukas cast overtook him and got out of control, obscuring other fine pieces he composed, like his piano sonata La Plat au Loire Dauphin and his opera Ariane and Bluebeard but we have all benefited from him not being a Love Islander, not saying it is what it is, and not letting the opportunity pass him by to turn a Goethe poem into a solid bassoon joke. Composer fact file, Paul Duca. Born October the 1st, 1865. He was self-taught until the age of 16 when he entered the Paris Conservatory. He studied alongside Claude Debussy, who would become a lifelong friend. He later became professor of orchestration at the Conservatoire, teaching the likes of Olivier Messiaen, Joachim Rodrigo, and Maurice de Rouflet. He planned several operas, but only one, Ariane and Bluebeard, reached the stage in 1907. The work was received as a radical social commentary on the place of women in society and found an admiring audience in the educated class of Femme Nouveau. After 1912, he ceased publishing his compositions and in 1935, a few weeks before his death, he burned many of his manuscripts. One of his early overtures, inspired by King Lear, was rediscovered and first performed in 1995. He once said to a pupil, Always remember that it should be written from the heart and not with the head. Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. Last week, the ENO's Macarius fellow, Olivia Clark, visited Sam in his Hernhill home and did a quick-fire interview about her new role with the opera company. Interview, 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 interview. I'm here in my sitting room with Olivia Clark, the new ENO Charles Macarius conducting fellow. Thank you so much for coming all the way to South London. 
Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to do a super fast John Cage 4 minutes 33 interview. Brace yourself. Oh, God. Here we go. Charles McCarris built up his experience at ENO conducting Gilbert and Sullivan. Do you have a favourite non-racist bit of GNS? Oh, no. <laughs> I really don't know any GNS, you know. I've stood completely clear of it. Last time I saw you, you were playing table tennis. Have you played since? I've actually played a lot of table tennis. Where are you playing table tennis? It's a big tennis? thing in Germany. That might be the answer to my next question. What's the best non-musical thing about moving to Berlin to study? Definitely not just the table tennis. Just the clothing decisions I see on the street every day are really exciting. I had a bit of a slightly overthinking London mindset when it came to choosing my clothes. And now I just go with the flow. Hardest non-musical thing about moving to Berlin? Being away from really close friends and family... Definitely. You studied singing at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. If you had to accurately sing one piece to save your life, which song or aria would you sing? Well, I always whap out Don De Lieta in the shower, so that's probably that would probably be it. But it's a bit too... Uh, it's not really a life-saving one. It's more of a I'm dying one. Can you play that on the swanny whistle? <laughs> That's a yes. <laughs> That's pretty difficult. Uh, you were the organ scholar at the Queen's College, Oxford. If you were an organ stop, which organ stop would you be? <laughs> That's such a good question. Oh, I'd be like a 32-foot trombone in the pedals. You have a long-standing affiliation with the Finchley Children's Music Group. What would you say to members of the FCMG who would like to grow up to be conductors? I would say go and do it and use your time in Finchley or in any other choir. Try out a bit of leading, ask your conductor if you can do a couple of warm-ups, just get used to standing in front of a group. Yeah. You're going to be the assistant conductor on Longborough Festival Opera's production of The Elixir of Love. If you were making The Elixir of Love, what would it taste like? Mm. I think it would be a dark purpley red with maybe a, a gold shimmer on it. So it would taste like a deep grape juice. Maybe it would have some of that edible glitter in it. Yum! Later this year, you've got Blonde Egbert coming up. In that, Egbert speaks about how good it is to tell friends secrets. Tell us one secret, and I should warn you, people do listen to this podcast. Oh, a thing that I don't keep completely secret, but that a lot of people do not know about me, mm -hmm. is that the sight or smell of vinegar makes me want to vomit. The BBC are currently running their Beat Beethoven scheme, where you have to try and run a 5K faster than they can play Beethoven 5. Oh, do you run listening to classical music or do you listen to anything else? Sometimes I do listen to classical music when I'm running, but only if I know that I'm re really trying to learn something. But mostly I listen to really bad German pop when I'm running. You're going to be working at ENO, which is often called ENO. Are there any other <laughs> words that you enjoy saying wrong? <laughs> um, I like absolutely or things like that. You've just finished rehearsing Vehicles by Martin Herring. 
If you could rename yourself with two first names, what would they be? <laughs> rename myself with two first names. I suppose Olivia Clark. Uh, yeah, basically that is my name already, yeah. Conducting is a privileged position to stand in. What do you get to see that you wish audiences could see? I wish audiences could see the humour that orchestral musicians have with each other when they're playing. The jokes, the elbows, the winks. Yeah, that's, that's where the magic is for me. Really nice. You've got to pick a pocket or two. The Humming Chorus from Puccini's Madame Butterfly, written in 1904. Claude Michel Schoenberg's Bring Him Home from the musical Les Miserables, written in 1980. You got to pick a pocket or two. Fisher, you're making it up. Why aren't you using the Encoder app like everyone else? What's Encoder? It's a music library app you can download right now. Start with a one-week free trial, then subscribe for just £9.99 a month to access the complete sales and hire catalogues of 100 publishers, including Boozy and Hawks, Baron Writer, Chester and Novello. But what if I want to write on my score with a pencil? Yeah, you can annotate the score with Encoder and share your markings with everyone else. So Simon Rattle literally called it the future of music making, duh. How do you spell Encoder? Not that again. From the top, gents. Earlier this week, Tim got on his bike and cycled over Westminster Bridge to Portcullis House to have a chat with David Lammy, MP for Tottenham, about, amongst other things, how art is a bit underappreciated in those upper echelons of power, despite it helping form so many of the people who now occupy Westminster. I'm very happy to be joined by David Lammy, the Member of Parliament for Tottenham, and I believe Member of the Parliamentary Choir. <laughs> so, David, you were born and raised in Tottenham, but a lot of people might not know that you were also a chorister at mm. Peterborough Cathedral and that you boarded at the King's Cathedral School next door. Could you talk me through how North London primary school boy ended up becoming a chorister at a cathedral school nearly 100 miles away? Well, you've got to, for your listeners, you've got to sort of go back to the late 1970s, early 80s, and Alid Jones had just got to number one in the charts with Walking, Walking in the, in the air. air. Snowman, of course. Um, and somehow, young boy choristers and, you know, p- things like the Vienna's Boys Choir were quite sort of big in the popular imagination. Now, I was growing up in a inner city Tottenham in a primary school with an unfortunate name, Downhills, 
but it had a wonderful tradition of music led by a fantastic music teacher called Mrs. Shepherd, who I love very much and very sadly died in her 80s just a few months ago. But anyway, Mrs. Shepherd, alongside the local priest, my mother was very sort of Anglo-Catholic and we used to go along to the local church, and the head teacher of the school decided that I had a voice and I should start applying for cathedral schools. Now, because I lived in Haringey Council, which was a very left-wing London council in those days, it, it was determined that it would be best if it was a state school. And King's Peterborough and Southallminster both fell into that category. I went for voice trials at both. I got into both and I decided, because it was my first time ever out of London, really, on a sort of inner-city train to both voice trials, that I would go to Peterborough because it was a little bit nearer to London. <laughs> and yeah. that's how I ended up becoming yeah. a cathedral chorister. And I describe it as my Billy Elliot moment. It transformed my life. Yeah. Before you end up going to that school, was music a big part of your home life as well as your school life? Very much so. Now, in so many ways, I mean, I both my parents just loved music. I was growing up in a typically West Indian home, and I guess they had a pining for the Caribbean from which they came. So whether it was Harry Belafonte's Calypso's or Bob Marley's Reggae or Michael Jackson's Soul, vinyl records were on the whole time in the house that I grew up in. And then we went to church and singing. And actually the church had a sort of little choir master and a, was part of, of what we did. So both in school, at home, in church, music and singing mm. was a very, very important part of my life. When, when you got to Peterborough Cathedral, how did your religious identity at the time fit in with that had you been to a cathedral uh, even song in that way before? Or was <laughs> no, it all brand new? No, that was all new. You know, Matin's even song mm. was very, very new. But I guess what was not new, particularly because I was in the Anglo-Catholic tradition, was sort of ceremony, bells and smells. Yeah, incense. <laughs> um, and, you know, incense and the sort of sacred nature of the words yeah. and that slightly sort of transcendental place and quiet place into which you arrive at. That, that tradition was not new. And, you know, I was just... Um, I was very young. I mean, I think I was just 11 when I arrived in Peterborough. And so, as a child, you, you do what what you're told to do and what is familiar. So I would say in some ways, the transference from Tottenham to Middle England was more challenging in the school environment. This was the early 80s. You know, I'm afraid racism was still very dominant in British society. It was the era of Alf Garnet, if you like. But the actual music and the pastoral and the cathedral side of life was actually in a way more familiar and more pastoral. I haven't read the whole thing because it's not out yet, but there was an extract of your book in the Times last week and you mentioned in that extract that being part of that cathedral tradition was quite a 
was a big part for you forming an English identity rather than a British identity. And was it the music itself? Was it the ritual and the tradition? Or was it something else that made you feel more English? Well, thank you very much for asking. So, I mean, my book, Tribes, in a way, is a sort of therapy um, in these divided times. And, you know, I found in the last few years in public life, I took a strong view on the Brexit and Remain issue. I'm deeply concerned about rising hate crime and aspects of xenophobia in our society. And naturally, as an ethnic minority MP um, on the Labour side, people look to me to be pretty robust in the public sphere. And so writing the book, I reflected on the areas to which I belong. And as whilst I'm very, very proud to be the Member of Parliament for Tottenham and very proud to have been born and raised in Tottenham and to support Spurs, I'm also very clear in my mind that I would not be a Member of Parliament, really, were it not for seven years living in Middle England in a boarding school and in that choir school environment, which gave me very much. And I guess when I was talking about being English, I was thinking about the fields on which I played rugby. <laughs> I yeah. was thinking about, you know, the sort of um, limestone of the cathedral. And in many ways, that's continued in my life. Here I am in Parliament. Before I was in Parliament, I was at Lincoln's Inn as a barrister. I was thinking of my first pint in the farmer's arms yeah. in Peterborough. So the book explores that and explores many, many dear friends in that city and in other parts of the country who are on a different side of the leave Brexit debate and where we find ourselves in Britain. I love these people. These people love me and I spend some time talking to them in the book. So it's sort of reconciling that sense of belonging and there is absolutely a side of me that's hugely proud, despite my critique of the country, as you'd expect as an MP, to be an English MP and a British MP and to hold that dear. So clearly this place had a really big effect on you. But do you think as somebody whose background was different in many ways to a lot of the other choristers and people at that school, do you think your presence had an effect on them? <laughs> Well, that's a great question. Um, I wish they were here to ask. I, I think they probably would say that it did. And in that sense, diversity, inclusion, mixing is a great thing. You know, when we think of, for example, let's take a completely different sphere. Let's take a great university like Cambridge. It's what makes a great university is the multi-interdisciplinary experience of different academics from different subjects, from anthropology to economics to bioscience, mixing and learning and experimenting and creating ideas together. And similarly, you know, environments benefit from difference and can become a bit ossified if they're sort of terribly homogenous. You know, music benefits from different traditions 
um, huge characters coming along and experimenting and bringing in a different tradition to really create something that resonates and is fresh and exciting. And so I guess that's part of the story. Mm. But then there's also another part of the story that's about, you know, and I'm, I was very blessed to be made culture minister under Tony Blair. And I remember the heritage sector was slightly nervous, um, this young black minister. Is he going to get our side of the business? But of course, I adored heritage. I adored the work of the National Trust or English Heritage, our great cathedrals, that side of the job, because actually there's also an important role for tradition, for history, and for the solidity of the past and what that gives you. And that, I suppose, brings me full circle to my own Christian tradition, mm-hmm. which is a, which is very important to me and is a, um, is a kind of rock. And in a way, my Christianities, I, you know, uh, there might be a few priests that don't like me saying this, it's quite cultural, really. It's a, it's a place, particularly now my parents are not alive, that, that I feel comfortable in because of that history because they and their parents grandparents did something before me in fact Peterborough Cathedral is still somewhere I can go and sit quietly in more stormy or emotionally challenged times in my life and feel comforted by the still the silence but also if the choir happens to be singing uh, you know a wonderful sort of solo ringing out and echoing across those walls. Mm. And you still go back quite I regularly. do go back quite regularly, yeah, yeah. Are there any pieces that have stuck with you from your time singing there? Oh, many, composers? many, many. I mean I, I mean, I love the sort of great, grand, traditional stuff, you know. Um, I was glad, yeah. um, oh, for the wings of a dove. I was the soloist in... Uh, Mozart's Mass in D minor, and then I love a good hymn. I mean, I, yeah. I sort of almost weep when Jerusalem comes on. You know, so I mean, it's all, um, you know, it's you know, it's pretty, pretty typical stuff for me. Going back to this idea of, of tradition and constructive nationalism, I suppose, Englishness. Yes. There was in the summer a social mobility commission report that found that children from disadvantaged backgrounds are three times less likely than pupils from wealthier backgrounds to learn an instrument or sing in a choir. How do you think this country would look if more people had a constructive way of expressing their national identity in the way that you perhaps did as a, as a chorister in a cathedral? Very positively. Yeah. I write in the book about country dancing. Now, in the 1970s, it was incredibly common across British primary schools for English children to sort of dance around the Maypole and practice country dancing 
as part of PE. And there was me in the 70s doing that and enjoying it and feeling English. I think there's a huge place for... Um, now, this has to be revised and be dynamic. It can't be ossified. But for a place where young people come together and participate at similar moments in times with parts of our cultural heritage. Now, obviously, you'd expect me to say that I, that cultural heritage has to be a multicultural one. It has to embrace all of us, if you like, and all traditions. But I do think it's quite important. And in the book, I reflect on why it is that we have allowed the English national flag and much that is English to be sort of overrun by the far right and by very extreme tendencies in society, almost mainstream politicians of both of the mainstream political parties are embarrassed by Englishness. We're much more comfortable with Britishness, much, much more comfortable with Britishness, so that you see since devolution that the Scottish identity in Scotland, that the Welsh identity, that the Northern Irish identity is powerfully strong and thriving. But somehow in England, particularly once you get out of the big cities, something doesn't feel quite right and people are ill at ease. And I talk a lot about this and propose lots of things. One of them is a national civic service that's compulsory, where young people can come together for a period and actually all participate. But my experience of, of being a chorister, as I say, does inform part of that. And I'm so depressed, so depressed at the seesaw approach to arts, culture, music in this country, that when funding is short, music is the first thing to be cut, that somehow when you're constructing as, as we saw in 2010, a new approach to academic rigour like the EBAC in 2010 that was introduced by Michael Gove. Out go the arts, out goes culture, out goes music. Yet music has been at the centre of why this country, if there's any great in Great Britain, it's very hard to make a case that culture and music is not the one of the quintessential aspects of that, yeah. our creativity and our history, and where British artists find themselves in the charts on a weekly basis, globally, tells you something about the importance of that, never mind the well-being that it gives to young people. So uh, th this case has got to be frequently made really, really saddens me. It's a very complacent approach, uh, very, very complacent to something that's very, very important. And, and is that? do you think that that's reflected in the Westminster bubble? It? I don't understand it. Yeah. I think it... Look, let's take both sides. You know, in my own party, amongst Northern MPs, who are very topical at the moment because of the nature of the election, brass band traditions are hugely important in many parts of the country. In, in my, for my Conservative colleagues, many of whom have been to some of the very best public schools in the country, these are public schools who've invested heavily over years in their music and arts departments. All of them have wonderful 
music traditions. The universities that, that many of them have gone to have strong music traditions. So why is it that you become an adult, you go into politics, you arrive in this place and you chop the things yeah. that have propped you up and got you to where you've got to? I don't, I don't actually understand what the... You know, what it is about society that makes one do this. What I can say for me, as you're probably realising, is perhaps because I grew up with, you know, so very little, and I recognise, um, and it makes me rather emotional talking about it, the way music transformed my life and gave me so much. It's, it's something that I, put, I hold very, very dear. Mm. And, and culture is... Uh, I married an artist as well, I suppose, so that I also... Um, <laughs> it's also the case that I go back home to this every night you know it's something that I don't I'm not I don't I'm not complacent about its importance are you seeing it as just a passport to the career that you had and the successful time you've had as a member of parliament or is it something deeper than that is it pure a real passion that you still connect with in your adult life well I mean I think that I found my voice in Peterborough Cathedral. I don't use my voice as a musician today. I use my voice in the amphitheatre that is the House of Commons. But I very much use my voice. I am part of the parliamentary choir, unfortunately, because I'm a very, very, very busy member of parliament. I'm not able to... Um, I, I hate musical performance if I've not practised. So I tend only to participate for the Christmas um, concert because I I'm able to I know all the I know all the know all the, yeah. all the music and, the chance um, to show and it's much easier to sort of turn up as a as a tenor and and, and be part of it and they enjoy that the, the parliamentary choir by the way is a choir that's not just members of parliament and members of the house of lords in fact in some ways you know we are a small part of the choir the parliamentary choir is a choir for the whole of the parliamentary estate Right. And so many people that work in the palaces of Westminster, whether they're security guards, parliamentary researchers, uh, librarians um, or cleaners, are able to participate yeah. in that choir, and it's fantastic. Have you caught up with the, the statutory instruments, the parliamentary string quartet? It's Fangham Debonair and Cathy Newman, Channel 4 Newsreader. Do you know what? I, I'm afraid this has passed me by. How you'll could have this to, have passed me you'll by? Have to, we, we actually I should approach have, them both now. You, should, you should approach them and see if you can, do, can collaborate on something. We, we caught them at the Speaker's House about six months ago. They gave a concert there. Oh, fantastic. John Burko came and gave a speech. Oh, fantastic. It was brilliant. It is, I think, a tribute to the quality of these statutory instruments <laughs> on the one hand and to your love of exquisite music on the other that Speaker's House has been effortlessly filled this lunchtime. What a magnificent demonstration of music. And um, did going off to be a chorister when you were 11 years old, did that any, put any distance between you and the friend, your friends that you had in Tottenham? And then, as well as that, do you think that now, as an, a member of Parliament, do you think having this quite traditional school upbringing uh, makes it in any way harder for your own constituents to relate to you now? Well, to answer the first question, you will definitely have 
listeners who understand that feeling of being an imposter, sort of imposter syndrome. And it's definitely the case, and I write about this in the book, for quite a long time in my life, that business of who am I, what am I, am I middle class, am I middle England, am I Tottenham, Um, what does it mean to be black, all of those questions swelled around in my head for a considerable period of my life and um, and so how one relates is definitely has definitely been a theme in, 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 in my life. But here I sit now at the back end of my 40s, approaching 50, and I don't feel like that. I very much know who I am. I'm very much reconciled to the, to the many aspects that make me who I am. Very proud of my parents, the Caribbean, Guyana. You know, very proud of Tottenham mm. uh, and what it gave me, but also very at home in Tottenham, my uh, sorry, in Peterborough, my in-laws live in Sussex, um, in the sort of Chichester area. Um, I have family in Wales, in Edinburgh, in um, Kent, and so you know, whilst I occupy a particular space in public life, whilst you know, I'm t- generally associated politically with the sort of tough domestic mm. issues of crime, knife crime, gang crime, riots, education, the arts uh, a-, a bit, uh, but generally the tougher side of life and some of the challenging stuff that, you know, whether it's defending the Windrush or raising important issues in relation to Grenfell, in terms of um, who I am and how I live my life and my sensibilities, um, I've definitely arrived at a place where I'm content with who I am and therefore broadly my constituents are content with who I am in mm. the 2017 election I got an 82% share of the vote that was a high point in my political career and it was I mean, I mean you know there are dictators across the world who quite like an 82% share of the vote so I think that the people of Tottenham um, get me they get where I'm coming from and they get the fact that I understand that my job is to represent their interest in Parliament. And actually, that's the job. It's not about being a politician. It's about representation, using the platform you have to raise your voice. 650 of us come together. I think the truth and probably good policy lies somewhere in the middle of that. But what you've got to do is bring your voice to the table. And if you don't do that, somehow you're letting your constituents down and letting down the way that our political system works. Mm. I'm very conscious that time is low, but I thought before before I sign off, you would be interested to know that Keir Starmer did a, uh, a party fundraising Desert Island Discs over the summer, and you, you, of course, are backing him for leader of the Labour Party. And I thought you might want to know what discs he chose. Right, what did he choose? He chose, well, he loves Northern Soul, apparently. He chose uh, Dobie Gray's Out on the Floor, which is a song I didn't know, uh, Desmond Decker, the Israelites, uh, Jim Reeves, who I don't know, Welcome to My World, Velvet Underground, Pale Blue Eyes, and Beethoven's Fifth Piano Concerto, which apparently he had at his wedding, I'm assuming the middle slow movement. Any of that made you, uh, made you change your mind about backing him? Or is Not that... at all. I'm <laughs> vice chair, chair of his campaign, so uh, I certainly will not be changing my mind at all. Um, <laughs> I think he went to university at Leeds, so that that might explain the Northern Soul yeah. um, and the era in which he 
popped up in the north. Well, there we go. Well, David, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Good luck with the the book. And, yeah, hopefully we'll run into each other again sometime. Thanks a lot. Tim, what's coming up? English touring opera's production of Cosi Fan Tutte, directed by Laura Attridge, who we interviewed in episode 6, is now touring various venues across the country. Upcoming performances include Snape Maltings on the 12th, the 13th and the 15th, The Lighthouse in Pool on the 20th and 21st, Buxton Opera House on the 26th, 27th and 28th. You can also catch them later on in York, Chester, Canterbury, Malvern, Cambridge, Northampton, Keswick, Lancaster, Durham, Leicester, Sheffield and Exeter. <gasps> Keswick's done well to get into that list, hasn't it? really well. Friday the 15th of March at the South Bank, the Philharmonia under Esapekka Salonen are reconstructing the famous 1808 concert in which Beethoven premiered his fifth anniversary and sixth symphonies, the fourth piano concerto, and the choral fantasy. Saturday the 16th is the birthday of George Telemann and Johann Strauss I, and marks four years since the death of Peter Maxwell Davies. Wednesday the 18th of March, at the Lighthouse in Poole, the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra and Kirill Karabitz are putting on a concert performance of Strauss's Electra. Wednesday is also the birthday of Nikolai Rimsikorskov, who will be 176 years old. Thursday the 19th of March, in the Purcell Room, there's a free concert of chamber music by Esapekka Salonen, given by members of the Philharmonia. Also on Thursday the 19th, at the Institute of Contemporary Arts, Mahogany Opera's Various Stages Festival reaches its culmination in an afternoon of work-in-progress performances, feedback sessions, panel discussions, funding surgeries and networking opportunities not to be missed by those interested in working in the industry. On Friday the 20th of March at Tate Britain, in partnership with the gallery's British Baroque exhibition, composer Benjamin Tassie and viol player Luke Chalinor will be presenting a reimagining of English Baroque music through combination of live playing, analogue synths and electronics, followed by a private viewing of the exhibition. Saturday the 21st is the birthday of both Johann Sebastian Bach and Maurice Mazursky, who share that date with footballers Brian Clough, Jordi Alba, Ronaldinho, Gary Walsh, Jake Bidwell and Ronald Kerman. That has got us thinking about a composer's 11. So watch out on social media for anything on that. Thank you very much to Will and to David Lammy for helping us organise that interview with him at Podcast House. And thanks very much to Olivia for coming to see me. Yeah, please do give us a like and a subscribe on all your social media channels and wherever you get your podcasts from. It makes a big difference to us. And we hope to hear from you soon in any kind of correspondence or letters or tweets. Send us over a message and we might read them out. He was self-taught. I'm sorry, that's absolutely (laughs) extraordinary.